0: welcome to Life's IB. I'm your host, Jacqueline Cowis. I have the pleasure of speaking today with Karun Naga, current partner at the Foundry in Silicon Valley, serial MedTech Operating Executive and CEO, former director in the Corporate Development Group at Medtronic, and former intellectual property lawyer. Karun received his bachelor's in mechanical engineering at Michigan State University, his law degree from the University of Michigan, and his MBA from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Please join my conversation with Karun Naga on LifeSide Beat.
1: Karun, welcome to LifeSide Beat. Hey Jacqueline, thanks. I really appreciate you having me.
0: Well, I want to kick off because we've had an exciting season for Big Ten football. I know you went to Michigan State for your undergrad and Michigan for law school. Could you speak to the audience about where your loyalties lie for these two big schools and their rivalry?
1: Well, I'm a a Michigan State Spartan through and through. I had a great time uh, as a student in Ann Arbor, but there's really no question, you know, where my loyalties lie. So congratulations to you guys for winning the Big Ten title and uh, representing the Big Ten in the playoff. But uh, we did win the head to head this season. So I'm, I'm feeling pretty good about our accomplishments as well. Yeah, you did beat us. So I think it's pretty even there. (laughs)
0: Great. Well, I want to start with where you're at now, the Foundry. It seems like the Foundry is a common thread throughout your career. You've been at the Foundry, left the Foundry, and always returned. So when you think about the Foundry, I've heard terms such as MedTech Incubator, Venture Studio, potentially VC. Could you speak to exactly what is the Foundry and what's the business model and structure?
1: Sure. Yeah, happy to. I mean, the Foundry is a place that I call home on and off for the last 16 years. Historically, we've called ourselves an incubator. I think we use that term just because of our limited vocabulary. When you use the term incubator, it it creates this image of we're a facility with a lot of experienced people. We invite startups and entrepreneurs to come in, take residence, and then we advise. And I would rather describe us as a group or team of serial entrepreneurs They like to work together. Like to start companies, build companies. We're incredibly hands-on. Oftentimes, we'll start a company around a need that we feel is compelling, and and we have a great network of venture capital investors and corporate investors that like to support us and come along for the ride. We get excited about addressing a big problem together, and so we may end up collaborating together and starting a company. So it does vary. I'd say us as a foundry, we're very much more hands-on. Than what you would typically think of as an incubator. I think when we spoke some time ago, you mentioned Venture Studio. I, again, limited vocabulary, so I didn't know what that meant. I went and I looked it up and said, hey, it's a place where a group of people will start companies, provide some financing, offer up the initial leadership, build the company up until it's ready to go out on its own. And I think that's actually a much better fit with what we do.
0: Yeah, it seems like a Venture Studio is a better fit for the foundry. And so what about the model? To answer
1: your question about our model, what we'll typically do is we'll start a company, we'll form what we call a new co, and uh, oftentimes we'll get it initially capitalized with some seed financing. Most often that's with in partnership with a venture capital investor that we've worked with successfully before. They want to be on the ground floor with us. And then what we'll do is we'll spend the better part of, of six months, maybe even a year looking at a Variety of unmet clinical needs. So, we're actually in the process of looking for big problems because that really defines a potentially compelling market opportunity. So, we'll take our time, look at clinical needs, talk to a lot of clinicians, do a deep dive into the literature, develop an intimate understanding of a number of different disease states or physiologies. And in that process, start to get excited about one, two, three potential directions. As we start to narrow that list, then we'll start focusing on potential solutions. We like to build companies on the shoulders of, of course, our failures, but also the failures of others, and really learn from other people's experiences. And through that whole exercise, I think we can make some fairly informed decisions about what we want to proceed with. So kind of at the end of that incubation process, we'll have conviction around a particular clinical need and market opportunity as well as one or two or more potential solutions that could be the foundation for building a company. And usually at that time, there's an opportunity for us to go raise a more substantial round of funding with our seed investors, as well as potentially bring in new investors. That first round of funding is really pivotal because it gives us the resources then to build a company. So even though we see ourselves as technology innovators and entrepreneurs, at the end of the day, What we want to do is build a successful company because our measure of success is about getting a compelling therapy to market so that it can impact the standard of care and alleviate suffering, save lives. Having a successful business is critical to that. So that's really soup to nuts, our model.
0: Yeah, let's talk about success because a lot of the new codes that came out of the Foundry have been acquired by the big strategics. So what do you think the Foundry does well that makes a lot of these companies
1: so successful. I don't know if there's one thing, but I think we take stock of who we are and what we care about. And in the case of the Foundry, we like to pioneer new therapies. So first of its kind, groundbreaking therapies, do something that's never been done before. There's a lot of risk and uncertainty to that, but there's also a lot of reward. And that model aligns best with venture capital investment. So it's been a good fit for us over the years. Again, I think we've had a good number of successes, but uh, also a lot of learning experiences on these journeys. There are other types of entrepreneurs that like to you know, play in the same sandbox. They develop a particular familiarity with the disease state, and they tap into that ecosystem. And so they keep creating companies focused on one particular area of disease. Or it could be technology-focused, where you develop an expertise in one type of technology, and then you keep innovating in that area, which is... Great. I mean, we need uh, entrepreneurs like that. But I think for us, we like to learn. We like to get into an entirely new clinical area and partner up with a new group of physicians, even technology experts, and see if there's a way that we can come in and look at things through a different lens and uh, make an impact. And so, you know, over the years at the Foundry, I mean, 20 years, 25 companies later, we worked in so many areas of medicine. i have done a lot in cardiovascular and structural heart. And so there's some brands out there like the MitroClip sold by Abbott that that came out of the foundry as an example. Yeah, that was a big one. We've had a lot of success, but we've done work in ophthalmology, obesity, dermatology, orthopedics. So we like to go into these new spaces and and have an impact. And then similarly with technology, we've done a lot of catheter-based technologies, whether it's implants being delivered with a catheter or we're blading tissue using energy delivery via a catheter, but we've done a ton of other work in polymer sciences, drug delivery. Again, we like to learn, and, and so it's really, this platform has enabled us to really go very broad, which for me has been incredibly gratifying.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's great that you've touched a lot of different areas of diseases and innovation and technology. It's definitely not boring when you're constantly learning about something new. Were you always interested in medical device innovation, or what started this
1: career journey for you? Yeah, I'll I'll give you some perspective. I'll try to keep it brief. I grew up in the Midwest, again, like you, and went and studied mechanical engineering at, at Michigan State, and that was a great experience. I come from a family of engineers and doctors, and so I've had a lot of visibility to engineering on one side and medicine on the other, but I really never appreciated until much later that there's a connection between the two. And growing up in the Midwest, I was surrounded by the auto industry and a lot of production, engineering, and manufacturing. My dad was a manufacturing engineer, and he had a number of successful businesses in manufacturing, but that just wasn't my thing. I actually decided to rebel and pivot, and after studying engineering, I went and studied law. So that's, that's where, how I ended up in Ann Arbor to go to law school there, and that was an incredibly different experience. I would say my career is made up of a lot of zigs and zags. And so that was one of the the biggest zags that I made was going from engineering to law. But that opened up a lot of doors and perspective. Having an engineering background, studying law, that kind of opened up some doors for me in the field of patent law. And I found myself looking at the new economy out here on the West Coast. I mean, again, this was 20 plus years ago, kind of at the the height of the dot-com bubble, but there was a lot of interesting things going on with startups and venture capital funding on the West Coast. So after I finished my legal education, came out to the West Coast, landed at a firm focused on intellectual property. And that was a great learning experience because I was working very closely with entrepreneurs, venture capital investors, startup folks. And I started to really kind of niche myself in life sciences and medical technology. So a number of med tech startups, some physician entrepreneurs, and that was a lot of fun. But honestly, it was not nearly as gratifying as I thought it could be because at the end of the day, I was like, I really want to do what they're doing and I want to be them. I don't want to be their lawyer. So within a few years, I quickly shifted, went in-house to one of my clients, which is a medical device company. And that was a ton of fun. And about 16 years ago, I left my job in Southern California at a medical device company, came up to the Bay Area and landed at the foundry. And for me, that was perfect because I could leverage my expertise in patent law. But in entrepreneurship, I mean, we have limited resources. So if you can do more and you want to do more, there's plenty of opportunity to do that. So I was never the patent guy on staff. I was just one of the team that had ownership over the IP and that gave me a seat at the table, but really allowed me to grow in and develop parallel. So yeah, that was kind of a journey. And it's been, like I said, a lot of zigs and zags, but uh, an incredibly rewarding process that's enabled me to now help create, start and build companies. Yeah, and it's a
0: great intersection to have both the technical background and the legal background. And for startups, having understanding of intellectual property, being able to not only generate intellectual property, but how to properly write up patent applications is crucial. So I'm sure that was very valuable when you joined startups at the foundry. One of them being Ardian. I would love to hear you talk more about this particular startup, Ardian, which is also a startup for renal denervation. I would love to hear you explain more about renal denervation what that
1: treatment is used for and what problem it's solving. Sure. Ardian was a company incubated out of the foundry with the idea of developing a medical device-based treatment for hypertension, which is chronic high blood pressure. Before Ardian was developed, typically patients would take medications, right? Exactly. You know, it was really the domain of the pharmaceutical industry and hypertension, diabetes, these chronic diseases, these are... Things that the farm industry really likes in that you're managing a chronic disease. You're not, you're not solving it. You're not curing it. And that's a sustainable revenue, especially for these innovative therapies. Now with hypertension, a lot of the drugs are falling off patent and the high margins are going away. And there wasn't really a lot of innovation on the farmer side. And so we saw an opportunity to come in and say, hey, you know, maybe there could be a device-based therapy. What's going on with chronic high blood pressure? And I think one of the things that we discovered very early on, hypertension is neurally mediated. And what I mean by that is there is communication between the brain, the central nervous system, and different parts of the body, particularly the heart and the kidneys that play a role in elevating high blood pressure. And we realized that there was communication that was going on via the renal sympathetic nerves. So these are the sympathetic nerves that allow the kidneys and the central nervous system to communicate. There was some, we call it maladaptive signaling that was occurring that was causing this perpetual or chronic hyperactivation of the sympathetic nervous system that was a main culprit in chronic high blood pressure. And so if we could find a way to knock out that signaling, we may be able to have a therapy here. And- and so we said, okay, if we could find a way to disrupt that signaling, that's going to be important. But then how do we do it? There are entrepreneurs out there that had different ideas about, well, let's go in with like a nerve stimulation system and implant you know, this tin can with leads to these renal sympathetic nerves. I think the recognition that we had at the foundry was who's going to be the customer? Who's really going to be able to treat these patients? Who has access to them? And given the amount of innovation in cardiology going back to the 80s with like angioplasty and coronary stenting. We knew that the interventional cardiologist has access to a lot of these patients. They're an early adopter of new technology. They like innovation. So is there a way to, for us to develop a product that would be used and appeal to the interventional cardiologist customer? And we said, okay, is there a way to access these renal nerves with a catheter? And so I think that was a big discovery. It was the ability to access these renal nerves from within the renal artery. And so we developed the Simplicity catheter system at Ardian, which was this energy delivery catheter-based system where we deliver a catheter into the renal artery, place the distal end of the catheter against the wall of the renal artery, and then deliver radiofrequency energy into the wall of the renal artery to create a lesion that penetrates deep into the tissue to hit the renal sympathetic nerves with the goal of cutting off neural communication between the kidney and the central nervous system. When we think about how do we de-risk this, I mean, in entrepreneurship, the goal is really to retire risk as efficiently as possible. And there are a lot of questions here in terms of safety, efficacy, durability of treatment. Yeah, especially Um, because it's a newer
0: therapy. I mean, that hasn't been developed.
1: There's never been a reason to deliver energy from within a renal artery, especially ablative levels of energy. I mean, you want to protect the kidney. You don't want to do something that can harm it. So developing the right kind of models on bench in an in vivo setting was absolutely critical. That itself took a tremendous amount of innovation. It took years, a lot of experiments, a lot of funding just to get to that point where we could say, hey, this is safe and there's potential for clinical benefit before any doctor would consider using this technology in a clinical study. So you got to really commit to a long road here and take all of the steps. It's a very methodical, deliberate process with a ton of uncertainty, but you got to be committed to doing it because if you don't do that well, you're not going to have the opportunity to advance and uh, actually test your technology in the clinic. And it's critical to the success, I think you mentioned in the
0: beginning, you had all these ideas that you're trying to prioritize and figure out what's the best modality to essentially treat hypertension. But I think thinking about the customer is where you guys started off and who's actually going to use this and what's that use case. It was imperative because that led you to a catheter-based technology, which ultimately drove to this type of therapy and lowering blood pressure off patients. So what was the the inflection point, knowing that this is actually going to be successful? Was it that moment where you put in patients and saw that blood pressure drop for the first time? Was it the moment that you built a prototype
1: and it didn't fall apart? Like, what was that inflection point for you? You know, I'd say there were two, and it was in the clinic. Once we got into the clinic, we very early on saw some profound reductions in blood pressure, which for me at the time, you know, doing a lot of the patent work was really incredible. I mean, I can tell you exactly where I was when we found out that we were having these profound reductions in blood pressure And this was no longer a science experiment. This was a real therapy. That turned my role and job into something incredibly important because now it's not just about dropping stakes in the ground to give us the option of protecting this in the event this this becomes big. We knew at that time that this would become very big and compelling. And so we had to make sure that everything that we were learning, everything that we were investing in, especially with all the venture capital that we were pulling into the company that we protected these ideas so that our proprietary technology remains ours and we can get the benefit of all that investment of capital and sweat equity. We had a critical mass of patients in that first in human experience, and we saw a lot of consistency in response. So that was a really huge inflection point for us. The next one was when we advanced the program, we had refined the device, we started working with a larger segment of the KOL, the key opinion leader community, especially in cardiology and hypertension. And we had designed a randomized controlled study that we executed on in Europe, but was really our dry run for the pivotal study that we would need to run in the U.S. to gain regulatory approval. And so in that study, you know, again, randomized and controlled, some would get randomized into the control group, others would get treated. And then the big question here is, were we creating drops in blood pressure compared to the control. And oftentimes, you know, you'll see movement in the control group because of placebo. In this study, we were able to really manage a lot of that risk and at the end of the day, we'd executed on that study a large number of patients and we saw really great reductions in blood pressure, virtually no reduction in the control group, and the results were published in The Lancet, which is an incredibly prestigious journal. It was also presented as a late breaking trial at the American Heart Association annual meeting. And so that was a big inflection point. In fact, that really provoked an MA process at Ardian. We had a number of corporate strategics that were looking in. At that time, Medtronic was an investor in the company. And developing an innovative therapy in interventional cardiology, particularly one that could create a new market, was very exciting. So we had a lot of corporate interest. And then when we had very credible data coming out of this study that demonstrated great potential for efficacy, it led to a very intense and ultimately successful acquisition of the company.
0: Yeah. So you touched on the end result there. So we know that RDM was acquired by Medtronic for, I believe around $850 million. So definitely a big acquisition for its time. Probably one of the bigger acquisitions for Medtronic in general and I know having worked on the, the product myself while well, at my time there, I know they're heavily investing in renal denervation in general, putting in a big effort in developing the market and being the pioneers in treating hypertension. I'm curious, how did that relationship start in making them interested in the first place? And what would you say is the biggest challenge throughout the whole m process?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, that was, I'd say, one of the more unique parts about this journey at ardian I think getting cardiovascular companies interested in a catheter-based therapy that would be adopted by interventional cardiologists that would give them access to hundreds of thousands, if not potentially millions of new patients, that's a formula for getting a lot of interest, getting a ton of attention from these corporates. So that part wasn't difficult. You know, I think... Interactions with Medtronic started relatively early in the history of the company. I mean, this was a bit of a science project, and so we wanted and to confirmed to ourselves that we really had something that was compelling. So with all of our companies here at the Foundry, we remain in stealth mode until we've hit a major inflection point, You know, usually around uh, some early clinical work that at least confirms safety, but hopefully safety, plus some measure of efficacy. So that was really our playbook here stay in stealth, And then once we had more confidence and conviction around the potential impact of this therapy and technology we're developing, then we can start engaging. And, you know, when we engage, we want to talk to people that that we know, that we trust, are committed to being partners. I think we're privileged enough to have relationships at a lot of the big innovation-driven medical device companies. So starting the conversation with Medtronic, amongst others, was a natural thing. It's a dating process. You're you speed know, dating. <laughs> It starts with speed dating, and, and you see where the interest is. And if there's mutual interest, you can advance things. Mm-hmm. But you know, I, I don't want to take the metaphor too far. <laughs> uh, but it, you definitely want to go deeper in the relationship. You want to show them a little bit more and get more familiar with them as you go. I think investing is a great way to advance the relationship because. They help contribute to de-risking the project with their capital. They also, by having some involvement as an investor, you can get access to some of their know-how and resources. And so that could really further help de-risk it. So there's a lot to be said for some of this corporate investing. It's usually minority investments that are taken because the strategics need to really keep any of this work off of their balance sheet right? You know this, Jacqueline, these organizations have large R&D groups. They're spending a lot of money on organic R&D work, and that all hits their balance sheet and their profitability. The minority investing that they do with external innovation, as long as they kind of stay below a threshold of, it could be 20 or 15 or 10% of equity ownership, then this is not something that has to be reported in terms of, Impacting their profitability. And so that's, that's a big motivation. It gives them access to innovative technology, and it's not something that's going to impact their, their earnings. A lot of the corporates do, do investing. Medtronic has, has done it incredibly well over the years. And so that's how the relationship started. We said, okay, we have clinical data. I think this is incredibly interesting. Let's go out and start talking to corporates and see who might be interested in partnering with us. The one risk, though, in this is you want to sell the company <laughs> when it's time to sell the company, not prematurely. You don't want the investment process to become or lead to an exclusive relationship that discourages other interest from other buyers. What is the challenge with that? The bigger challenge is, I'd say twofold. One, it's, it's strategic rights. You know, Does the corporate investor have some type of strategic right, a right of first refusal or future commercialization? distribution rights or a right of acquisition that really affects the playing field where they now have a real advantage in acquiring the company. I think that's the first kind of potential for advantage that could impact the acquisition market. The second one is just visibility to the technology. By the corporate being involved in investment, they may take a board seat. They may just be a board observer, but now they have a front row seat to the development of the technology and the therapy as we're de-risking it. And for the stuff that we work on at the Boundary, it's pioneering, it's provocative, and it's a steep learning curve. If you have a front row seat to all of that learning, it's going to make it a lot easier for you as a corporate internally to make decisions about acquisition and whether or not we're going to write a big check to buy this. It's a lot harder if you're on the outside looking in and you only have a couple of months to do diligence. How do you develop the conviction to write a check that's going to be competitive with that of the corporate investor? So having that inside track is also a source of real advantage that could discourage interest from others. When it did come time to entertain acquisition interest, we made it a very level playing field, a very credible and fair process that allowed everybody the opportunity to to take a shot.
0: I'm sure having the strategics invested and on the board early on in your startup helped advance the M&A process. Do you recommend that for all med device startups?
1: I, I do recommend engaging with strategics early and if possible often, so you can understand how they're thinking about things. How do they assess strategic fit? What is their strategic map and how, what you're working on may fit with all of that. And also at what point would they actually be interested? You know, they want to look at everything, but I think you you get a sense of when a project or a technology is ripe enough in its development to get serious interest, whether it be investment or M&A.
0: It makes sense to engage with the strategics early on, especially if you want to speed up the M&A process. I know after RDN, you joined that strategic for a couple of years in their corporate development group, but then came back to the foundry, not only to lead the incubation efforts, but be the founding CEO of a new emerging startup called Olay Therapeutics. Could you speak a little bit about that startup and how you shape the future of that business?
1: Yeah, just to touch on the first part of that, I, my time at Medtronic was great, really helped me think about how large companies assess strategic fit and how they partner with external groups to source innovation and create growth. And I wish I could have stayed longer, but really had the itch. Came back to the Foundry, you know, which is a great platform for entrepreneurship. And you know, folks there had a lot of confidence in me and said, hey, you can quarterback the next venture, which led to Allay Therapeutics. And in short, Jacqueline, Allay is a drug delivery company focused on treating post-operative pain. So when you go in for a major surgery, you're gonna have severe, profound post-operative pain. There's an incision that's made. There are all sorts of cuts. There's trauma to the tissue, and that's painful. And these pain singles go from the surgical site up to your brain, and makes for an incredibly uncomfortable experience, but it's also the source of potentially a lot of tragedy because historically, opioids are, are often prescribed To deal with that pain. In many cases, especially in orthopedic surgery, you need to start doing physical therapy within hours after that surgery. And pain is not a reason or an excuse not to do your PT. But what ends up happening is is you get a prescription of opioid pills to take the pain down and enable you to do PT. As we all know, the opioid crisis left a huge mark on society and has contributed to such tragedy and cost here. So our vision, Jacqueline, it was, well, is there a way for us to leave something in the surgical site that could deliver pain medication that will really block neural signaling from the surgical site up to the brain? Opioids work on the brain. And so if those signals never get to the brain, then you don't need no opioids. You can preempt use of opioids entirely. What we did is we actually developed a drug delivery technology, so taking polymer, and drug, and in this case, it's local anesthetic. So like you go to the dentist, you get a couple of shots of Novocaine, which makes your teeth, your gums numb and allows the dentist to perform the procedure. Usually that numbness continues for a few hours. And that's because the half-life of this drug is so incredibly short. The goal for us was with these types of drugs, we know that they work well, they just work really short. So is there a way for us to build or create a construct that will actually release the drug in a very controlled way so that we could extend the benefit? We can create that numb surgical, like we call it a field surgical block with the drug, but over an extended period of time. And so that was the innovation is that we were able to create this carrier that allowed us to release the drug over not just one or two days, but actually two to three weeks. Um, and there are products that have been developed over the years that are focused on the one to two days post surgery. There are a lot of minor surgeries that are that where the post operative pain is well managed. But from the more severe surgeries, a week, two weeks, three weeks of pain management is critical because of the amount of trauma. So that's like knee replacement, hip replacement, anything involving thoracic surgery, like a thoracotomy. So there's a large number of procedures that really benefit from this. In my view, our vision is to take opioids out of those surgeries entirely. And so the innovation here was not only creating that that controlled release mechanism, but also being able to load enough drug that could be released over that lengthy time period. I mean, that's a lot of drug that you would be placing in the body. And so you want to make sure that it's released in a very safe and controlled way to avoid any concerns over toxicity but then also to make sure that in those later time points, the patient is getting enough drug to make them comfortable.
0: Yeah, it's incredible to not only alleviate pain, but also alleviate the opioid crisis. So definitely a game changer. As the new CEO of this company, what was the biggest challenge in developing this product?
1: So consistent with our model at the Foundry, Jacqueline, we have one person that's designated to run the incubation effort, land on a project, And then serve as founding CEO, which usually involves raising money, building a team, laying out the development plan, and then executing in the near term until we can hit a major value inflection point. And then, usually, at that time, we'll recruit an industry CEO to take the project over, move it to the next phase. In this case, I think one of the big challenges was that it's actually not a device, it's a drug, because the primary mode of action is the drug itself. And so it is a combination product where there's a drug aspect and a device aspect, but it's primarily a drug. So I think straddling between two worlds of drug and device, it's a more complex regulatory process. Having polymer and then having a therapeutic agent also makes this a very chemistry invasive or intensive type process. Historically, we've done a lot of bread and butter medical device innovation with Catheter delivery systems, nitinol implants. This is very wide ranging in terms of our capabilities. So, I would say for me as a mechanical engineer, as a lawyer, as an MBA, now getting into really serious chemistry and drug development was a big challenge. But that's where we go and, and we say, okay, we need to bring in the expertise. And so, building a team of folks that can work in devices, work in drug development, have the right background, have strength in chemistry was incredibly important and recruiting that team building it up was challenging but we were able to successfully develop the product get it into the clinic we still have a ways to go in terms of working with fda and getting over some of the, the regulatory thresholds but we got it to a place where we had really exciting early clinical data we went to australia uh, to do the early clinical work and the readout was great it enabled us late last year to hire a biotech ceo The fantastic domain experience this year, earlier this year, we closed on a $60 million fundraise for the company. So that allowed us to fill the tank. And now we have the resources to drive this forward and further de-risk the project. So that's been an incredibly gratifying project because again, the opioid crisis has been full of tragedy and we see a huge opportunity to improve the standard of care. And I think we're on a really good and encouraging path there.
0: So when you think about now that that company has new leadership and you're taking a little step back now that you got to a certain level that you wanted to get, both being in patients and now having a new round of funding, what's next for you? What's next for Naga
1: in the journey of medical device innovation? Well, that's really the wonderful part about our model here at the Foundry. It's okay. Started a project, turned it into a company, built a team, brought in a nice syndicate of investors, a CEO who's really poised to... Hopefully, take us to the promised land. And now that frees me up to come back in and do it all over again. Since January, I've been leading a new venture. I'm the CEO of, a, of one of our other new co's. Still very early in the process. Still so in stealth we're, mode? The name cannot we're be stealth, we're, we're in stealth mode, but uh, getting ready to close financing that's going to give us the resources to do this right. And very, very excited about the project. For me, partnering with Clinicians and technology developers and investors who have that vision of doing something that hasn't been done before. And I think we're off to another great start. I'm like a kid in a candy store here. You know, there are a lot of great opportunities to really advance the standard of care and alleviate suffering, treat disease. And we have a platform that allows us to do that. And what I really like about it, it gives us flexibility. If you're quarterbacking a project, you can make it your own. And so, I'd say that's one of the coolest parts about this kind of, I'll call it mentor studio type structure is we can make these opportunities our own and focus on problems that are of great interest to every one of us.
0: It's incredible that you were able to touch so many different areas of of healthcare and medical device innovation. For those listening, we have early stage medical device entrepreneurs, people in the life science industry. We also have many students listening in, MBA students from the Wharton School or other graduate schools and undergraduate schools at University of Pennsylvania. Do you have any advice for early stage entrepreneurs or those that want to get into a career of life science innovation?
1: Yeah, I mean, lots of advice. You know, a couple of things come to mind. I think one of the unique things, as we discussed earlier about my journey, is that, again, I've had a lot of zigs and zags, and I don't feel bad about that. I actually feel like those experiences have really informed a lot of my decisions, the pathway, and the conviction that I have in doing what I do today. And so I really encourage folks that have different experiences. Some of those experiences may fall short of their expectations. Embrace it. Learn from it. I use the word struggle when I think about and talk to my kids in a very positive way. Struggle is good. Struggle really pushes your limits. It helps you learn about who you are. It's a great exercise in self-awareness. What we're doing in MedTech Innovation is not easy. In fact, it's an incredibly humbling experience. And so you have to be prepared for a treacherous journey with a lot of zigs and zags. So be committed to learning and how that informs what you want to do next. I've had colleagues that have had really difficult experience with more risky PMA devices, and they've now decided to spend more time in digital health. I don't think that's necessarily easier. <laughs> it may be less risky from a patient standpoint or safety standpoint, but I think the bar is still remains very high in terms of what you have to demonstrate to create value, whether it's clinical value or uh, and or economic value. So I would say that's the first thing is, is you got to be committed to, to learning and, and struggle. The second thing that comes to mind, you know, Jacqueline is just people. For me, what I do is really partnering up with Really an incredibly amazing, passionate, elite group of people where we we have this common vision of doing something that's never been done before. And we put integrity and ethics and caring for one another as the highest priority. And that's not just limited to us, it's everybody that we work with and absolutely the patients that we ultimately serve. I would say make people a priority and never compromise because when you're fighting a disease you're going into battle and there's a lot of risk and uncertainty. And so you want to make sure that the people that are in the foxhole with you are people that you trust, admire, can lean on. And I've never regretted holding out and making sure that I never compromise on the people I work with. I have regretted when I haven't done that. So I would say those are probably the two things that come to mind. And I think that's broadly applicable. I mean, definitely it applies in med tech, but any of the students out there that are thinking about what's next for them, no matter what industry that they, they're in or they go to, I think think it works there as well. Absolutely. I think those words are incredible to inspire the next
0: wave of life science entrepreneurs. Well, I want to end here. I want to say thank you so much, Karun, for joining LifeSide Beat. It's been a pleasure chatting to you today. And I look
1: forward to speaking with you in the future. Sounds good, Jacqueline. Really enjoyed it. And best of luck. I think this podcast is a, is a great idea and just feel privileged that, that you asked me to participate. Thank <laughs> you.